1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you today from the Sub-China Women's Conference in Manhattan. Let's hear all you women and a handful of gentlemen make a lot of noise. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, that, that, that sounds... I mean, I am Kaiser Guo. I am joined by... The militant vegan, CrossFit and mindfulness enthusiast, three-time TEDx Nashville speaker, marketing ninja, social media guru, influencer, and thought leader, Jeremy
2: Goldcorn. Jeremy, <laughs> greet all these wonderful people, won't you? Hello. That was the worst introduction so far. Thank you, Kaiser. <laughs> I, what I try to do is like put all the
1: things I know you detest into one description. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not a CrossFit enthusiast, as it turns out. Uh, Anyway, today we are absolutely delighted to have back on Seneca Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, partner at Wilmer Hale, but perhaps best known for what she did 20 years ago, which was, of course, successfully negotiating China's entry into the World Trade Organization. As the U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador Barshevsky, thank you so much for taking the time to join us in Seneca.
0: My pleasure. Absolutely.
1: So so last time you were on the show, uh, we talked about all the, that historical negotiation that you were involved in, a bit about some of the issues that we were facing then. So Jeremy, I have a question for you. What on earth would we want to talk to Ambassador Barshevsky about today? Are you aware of any maybe trade-related issues that China and the United States have maybe had? <laughs>
2: oh, I can't <clears throat> think of anything, really, Kaiser. <laughs> but but hang on. Let's abandon the dad jokes. Um, there's quite a lot we have to talk about. Um, Charlene, I imagine... You You have followed the course of the recent trade talks, Trump's big tariff announcement, uh, tariff hike announcement, and all of that. The last time we talked uh, was in the spring of 2017, before Donald Trump uh, made his state visit, his visit to Beijing that Li Keqiang called State Visit Plus Plus. It was uh, before Trump's tariffs kicked in. Um, At the time, you defended uh, China's entrance into the WTO, uh, and we agreed. It isn't that we think there are no problems with uh, America's uh, trading relationship with China uh, and other features of the relation. Uh, Nothing is perfect, Um, but the basic goals to Kaizen and me, and I believe to you, of of China joining the WTO were in fact met. Uh, It did enrich the Chinese people, and it did enrich the people of the countries that China traded with. And China did, to an extent, open up, um, to to an extent. Um, We don't want to rehash that debate here, um, but we find ourselves now in an actual trade war. just over a week ago, it looked like it might be resolved. Um, and then it all fell apart very suddenly. Uh, China, by some accounts, changed previously agreed wording. Trump tweeted, promised uh, a tariff hike ratcheted up the tension uh, with an executive order targeting Huawei. So what is your best guess as to how things got derailed? Was it, as the New York Times account had it, a matter of Xi Jinping having miscalculated Trump's eagerness to get a deal and that the Chinese side then overreached on the edits?
0: So I think if you're not in the room during a negotiation, you actually have no idea what happened. You have reports of what happened, you have a gut instinct as to what might have happened. Certainly China has its version uh, of what happened, the U.S. has its version, Uh, but it's really a very close circle that knows what actually happened. I think uh, my sense would be something along the following lines. A combination, first of all, of a continued and persistent a uh, misapprehension on the part of Xi Jinping about Donald Trump, a misunderstanding of Trump's motives and his uh, way of operating, particularly when it comes to deals, coupled with seeing a text in full, which when one sees constituent parts might not look too overbearing, but when one sees in full relief, looks exceptionally overbearing, making China look perhaps small, coupled with uh, a sense on the part of China uh, that certain of the provisions in total either impinged on China's sovereignty with respect to changes in laws or were unrealistic with respect to the extent of purchases the U.S. wanted China to make or uh, were themselves um, uh, not emblematic of the negotiation that actually took place. That is to say, China wanted all the tariffs off. It believes it persistently told the US it wanted all the tariffs off as a precondition to doing a deal, and the US refused. So I suspect that the combination of all of those things coupled with, I think, a U.S. side that had decided China needed the deal, that the U.S. had the upper hand rather than the other way around, and so the U.S. didn't have to be as perhaps uh, as creative as it might have otherwise been.
1: So one of the words that we heard in, in regard to China's behavior uh, in its extensive revisions to what I've heard was a 150-page document was that China had reneged on the deal. What do you make of that word? Do you think that that's, that's a fair characterization of what China had done? Did they renege, or was this just sort of what a standard negotiation involves, is revisions?
0: Well, certainly the extent of revisions this late in the game, when everyone thought a deal was done, is a bit on the unusual side suggesting someone was passing like ships in the night. It's something the minds hadn't met entirely. Someone misunderstood something or someone else or some other group. Hmm. Um, the word renege is a strong word. If you're the U.S. administration, you most certainly would use it. If you're the Chinese administration, you would say that the U.S. acted unreasonably, selfishly, greedily, uh, and uh acted as though it was the only aggrieved party in the matter when, in fact, all of this began, in China's view, with the U.S. having imposed tariffs illegally under WTO rules. So each side has their narrative, and each side has their way of expressing that narrative, and that, of course, plays to their own domestic politics. Every country has its domestic politics, even authoritarian countries, right? They may have a different kind of domestic politic, the authoritarian hardliners versus the liberalizers versus some group in the middle, and in the U.S., the body politic in general. Uh, But everyone has their narrative, and until there's a deal reached, they'll stick to the narrative.
1: Yeah. So how much do you think this has to do with the fact that over the years, Xi Jinping has really so, sort arrogated of to himself so much power that he has a, a near total monopoly on power. I'm curious whether you think that a highly centralized leadership, uh, in China is easier or more difficult to negotiate with than a more collective leadership.
0: It depends who the leader is.
1: Mm. And in the, <laughs> the case of Xi, do you think that he is the sort of person, uh, who is, is, it tends to be sort of implacable and...
0: Well, what, what I would say is this. Anytime you arrogate all power to yourself uh, and discourage dissent (laughs) and discourage dissent uh, and have a tendency from time to time to shoot the messenger, Mm. um, every time you do that, you run the risk of substantial miscalculation. You don't hear the advice you should have heard or you don't listen to the advice that you heard but, for whatever reason, reject, uh, or you uh, ensure that only a certain kind of advice comes to your attention, but not other kinds of advice. And this leads to potentially bad decision-making, uh, a misunderstanding as to the issues involved and what the appropriate response might be. Uh, and that's always, uh, I think, a danger, I think one of the advantages in China uh, following the Maoist period, and that is collective leadership, was designed to do away with the excesses not only of an individual personality in the case of Mao, but the excesses that come about uh, when you refuse to hear all of the facts and take into account all of the considerations and listen to things you don't really want to hear, but you need to hear in order to make the best decision possible. Wait, now are we describing Xi or Trump? Uh, <laughs> well, mean, so I might be. Right. <laughs> uh, Trump is also
1: surrounded by people who tell him only what he wants to hear. Uh,
0: at this equally point. dangerous. Yeah. Totally.
2: <clears throat> so in your own experience of negotiating with a strong Chinese leadership, uh, I speak, of course, of Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji uh, in the 1990s. I mean, they perhaps hadn't monopolized power like Xi Jinping, but they were certainly a strong team. Do you see behavior from the Chinese side this time around that looks familiar to you? Are are, are these familiar patterns or a departure from the norm?
0: Not knowing for sure what the underlying set of disputes is that led to what looked like a deal becoming no deal at all. It's hard to say, but I would make the following comment. Countries have a kind of personality when they negotiate. And you really see, even in different administrations, a kind of consistency that's born of a country's history and of prior agreements it's done and its perceptions of the other party and so on and so forth. So American negotiators are always known as fairly open, talk too much, reveal too much, don't listen enough, Uh, but are always happy to feel that you're entitled to their opinion.
2: Uh, And that's kind of the view. (laughs) Exactly
0: right. Uh, Japanese negotiators are very different. And Chinese negotiators tend to be very pragmatic, very practical, uh, extremely tough, uh, but looking for the deal, looking for the deal, highly entrepreneurial in that sense. And this makes for actually a very positive combination between the U.S. side and the Chinese side. There's tremendous similarity in that pragmatic, let's get down to it, can we figure out a solution, oh, I've got an idea here, oh, I've got a better idea there, all right, can we combine them? This kind of up and back and up and back is very characteristic of negotiations uh, with the Chinese side, and I suspect that happened here but with the kinds of miscalculations that I adverted to uh, in the first question.
1: And and following on those miscalculations, when that document came back and the Trump administration and Lighthizer et al. had uh, had seen this, the Trump administration flew into what I would describe as kind of a high-dudgeon Uh, They really freaked out about this. And I'm I'm wondering whether you think that that was an overblown reaction that was counterproductive ultimately, or whether this is a tactic that will maybe bring a chastened China back to the table with its expectations managed downward.
0: Both sides need this deal. It is a complete fiction to suggest that 25% tariffs on imports into the United States is a good thing for America, and is paid for by anyone other than the taxpayers and American companies, both of whom foot the bill. The Chinese don't foot the bill. So the U.S., which has already seen some uh, indications of a little bit of a cooling economy, some slowdown in investment, corporations are sitting on trillions of dollars in cash because of uncertainty economically and that in and of itself impedes growth even when you are growing strongly, uh, the U.S. needs a deal. On the China side, the Chinese economy was already slowing before any of this falderall started. Uh, The Chinese growth rate of 6.5, 6.6. I don't know of any economists that believes that number and most believe you take two points off the top. Uh, so that economy isn't growing as robustly as it would, uh, be made to appear. You have high debt levels. You've got other, uh, sort of fragilities within the economy. Uh, and, you know, 1.4 billion people, that's a tall order in terms of governing in general. So China also needs a deal. So, yeah, you know, Trump, took his two-by-four and whacked it again, which is his sole negotiating style. Uh, (laughs) Xi Jinping was moderate in his rhetoric initially and then really let it loose, but I have a theory as to why he let it loose, subsequent. And that was completely to be, uh, I thought, expected. Um, But the fact is both sides need this to be resolved.
2: Charlene, could you expand on that, your theory about why Xi let it loose?
0: So this is maybe a little counterintuitive, but uh, let's suppose I say to you, I will never agree to a deal that puts in question the sovereignty of my country. Never. I will never do that. And then you do a deal, which actually puts in question the sovereignty of your country. But because you've said, quite convincingly, you'd never do a deal that does that, whatever it is you did over here, by definition, is not that.
1: So you've covered yourself, basically. You've
0: covered yourself. So you actually, and I know it's counterintuitive, but it really does work, because I've done this myself. (laughs) Uh, And as enterprising as reporters can be, they never saw the trick to it. Uh, It gives you room to make the shift you want to make because you've been clear you'd never have an outcome of A. By definition, whatever you agreed to was not A, even if it was.
1: Jeremy, write that down. It's a useful parenting tip.
2: Uh, yeah, parenting tip. I was also thinking maybe our next podcast could be called The Art of the Deal <laughs> <laughs> with Charlene Brashevsky. Absolutely. Um, Charlene, to sort of a related topic, do you think the American negotiators underestimated the weight Xi Jinping would give to domestic political considerations? You mentioned this previously. Um, his fear of appearing to accommodate or uh, uh, appease the United States,
1: compromise sovereignty or whatever.
2: You
0: know, I, I think uh, the U.S. negotiators had, have a decent sense that there is a hardline faction in China, including around Xi Jinping, that there is a more liberal uh, wing, if you will, exemplified by Liu He in part, uh, and that these factions don't always see eye to eye. And Xi Jinping, of course, will have his own views, which may or may not be known, Uh, to the negotiators. Uh, And so I do think that they understand that. It's not clear to me they tried to appeal to all of those factions in formulating the agreement that was formulated. But I think as a general sort of intellectual matter, I'm quite sure they know that China is not monolithic with respect to opinion at the highest levels.
1: So, what do you make of the, the pitch, the intensity, the, the timbre of Beijing's reaction? They had, as you said, been quite sort of mellow. They were really managing the own, their own media coverage of this. And then afterward, they really let loose. So there was this quite, uh, widely circulated Xi Wenlianbo, this evening news broadcast where, uh, there were, there was some quite strident language being deployed. And of course, this is a confluence of a number of things. It's not just the trade deal, but it's also these technology tensions that are. And and, um, what do you make of the pitch and intensity of, of that? Is this uh, about what you expected, or has this been a surprise at all?
0: I think what's been the bigger surprise has been China's quite mature, I think, and moderate reaction, careful reaction to everything that has happened to date from the very beginning of all of this, where China reacted in a measured way, measured rhetoric, measured response, proportional response, not even proportional rhetoric, a little bit softer rhetoric than the US was using. Uh, and I thought that was extremely smart of China to do that. It gave no cause for the temperature to rise even higher and the higher the temperature would rise, the bigger the hurdle rate Trump was putting on himself, not on China. So I thought they were very smart and very uh, moderate in the way in which they've responded to this thus far. And I think, sure, put aside the, the room it can give Xi Jinping to make a deal, you would expect at some point for China to say, OK, enough. And I think China reached that point.
2: To somewhat change topic, what do you make of Trump's understanding or misunderstanding of, of tariffs? Is he really that stupid, or um, <laughs> is he deliberately and cynically misleading his base?
1: You mean the idea that China is it's paying, paying the t- for and, the tariffs, into, yes, with the U.S. Treasury? Uh,
0: yes, that we're getting beautiful money from China. Um, <laughs> bigliest beautiful money from China. Uh, I don't know if he's being cynical. I don't know if he is misinformed. It, it doesn't matter. The fact is these tariffs are not money coming from China deposited to the US Treasury. Uh, th- this is a tax. Tariffs are a tax. It's why Republicans typically and Democrats often want to see tariffs reduced. Republicans have always wanted taxes reduced, tariffs or taxes. They are taxes on the people who pay the tax. <clears throat> and with the, in the case of imports, that tax is paid by the U.S. importer, by the U.S. consumer, by the U.S. company that is often the importer. That's who pays the tax. China does not pay the tax.
1: I'm imagining a scene where Kudlow or or Mnuchin are tr- is trying to explain this to Trump. Tariffs are attacks. Yes, tariffs are attacks. We want to attack China, right? Attacks. A T T A C K S. Except he'd spell it wrong. Right? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense now. Suddenly, I mean, you
0: know.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can answer this, but you know, drawing on your own experiences negotiating the EU accession agreement, do you think that There are lessons that would still be applicable. If you were to have Robert Lighthizer's ear as one USTR to another, are there things that you could tell him, insights that you could deliver about the Chinese negotiating style uh, that you think would still hold up today and would help him?
0: You know, that's a really hard question to answer. I'm not sure that I really can because I know from my own experience, people would give me tips, completely irrelevant, to what was actually going on, uh, you know, seven steps back behind where we already were uh, or not pertinent to the topic. So it's, it's extremely difficult to give, you know, in quotes, advice uh, when you're not privy to the conversations that actually take place. You know, Bob Lighthizer is a very able negotiator. He's a smart guy. He's experienced— Many years ago, he had been deputy USTR, so he knew the job well before becoming USTR. So I don't think he needs advice from me. Uh, I just think both sides need a deal at the end of the day.
1: Heiser might be a very experienced negotiator, as you say, formerly deputy USTR. But he, he also comes into this with certain ideological or, or sort of a personal emotional baggage when it comes to China. Would, would you be able to talk about a lot of this without being too ungenerous?
0: No, I don't. I, look, I don't want to characterize his views on China. He should characterize his views on China. Uh, I would say as a general matter, I think the Trump administration is quite interested in managed trade. Uh, I think this is really the calling card. Uh, That is to say, uh, we want you to buy more from us. And if you don't buy more from us in the following quantity over the following time frame, well, we're just going to have to impose tariffs on you to even out the score, whatever score is being kept in his mind. Uh, In other words, manage trade. Uh, Setting up quantitative expectations, qualitative expectations, setting up a time frame so on and so forth. It's, it's the U.S. saying you have to purchase a trillion dollars in U.S. agricultural goods within a certain time frame. And if a trillion sounds like too small a number, okay, a trillion too. And of course, then there have been rumors it's up to two trillion. Uh, I mean, the numbers get crazy, right? So that's managed trade. It's a managed trade solution. And one of the difficulties with these kinds of solutions is that they often are very costly to consumers. They often divert trade. They're intended to divert trade from the existing suppliers to you, to your suppliers. Well, that doesn't create more trade. It doesn't add to the pot. It just takes the hunk that was Brazil's or Argentina's or Europe's or South Africa's, and gives it to the United States. Those countries most assuredly will not stand still for it, as their industries, who are trading fairly, suffer from the repercussions of what is a managed trade approach. Uh, A
1: few weeks ago on the show, we had Wendy Cutler on uh, she had just published also, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're.
0: She's terrific.
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, uh, we talked to her. Wendy is now vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute uh, in D.C. She heads the D.C. office. And she had published a paper with ASPI, the Asia Society Policy Institute, suggesting that what we need is a more, a more multilateral approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was talking specifically about these sorts of problems that you were talking about, how uh, these, for example, uh, demands that, that, that China purchase X amount that is actually going to negatively impact, um, some of our other trade partners and some of China's other trade partners as well. Uh, I don't, you're probably, you've probably read that paper. Can you give us a, a quick uh, appraisal of that idea?
0: Sure. Uh, Wendy had gathered a number of people together. I know she spoke with Merritt and many of us. Merritt uh, Jenna, who's actually, a, a, uh, our, who well, our of board course is a panelist and distinguished dean and, all around good egg. Yes, uh,
1: she is. And I should add a, a sub-China advisory board member in right. good standing. Yes.
0: Absolutely smart lady. <laughs> really <laughs> smart. Um, and, uh, uh, and Wendy really put together a wonderful paper, uh, with many of her own ideas and other ideas supplied by, uh, people in some of these sort of talking and listening sessions that she had. Because the question really is, uh, what do you do about a China who had been on a convergent course toward market economics? First, tentatively so, beginning in 78, 79 with Deng Xiaoping, but then over time, increasingly so. And then around 2006, 2007, reform and opening, and that convergent course began to sputter, and once Xi Jinping came into office, reform and opening stopped. And the divergence in economic structure has accelerated quite uh, dramatically and quite radically. Uh, so what do you do when you have that situation? But in the context of an economy that's highly globalized and highly interdependent, how do you get the party that has veered off course – from the point of view of the spirit and nature of the WTO, and as well as its major trading partners, how do you get it to do that you back around the other way mm. and try and come back? And there are a variety of approaches one can use. Uh, my least favorite would be what the administration is doing now. Mm. My favorite approach would have been for the U.S. to stay in TPP because tpp helped to remake wto rules in the asian and china context even though china wasn't a member and i would have taken tpp to europe then you have 60% of global gdp on a system different from the system china is operating and then you say to china we'd like you to join but you have to change or you'll be disadvantaged in 60% of the global economy and with respect to your major trading partners. But it's your choice. So that that to me would have been a, a better course of action. It would have been not just a more sustainable course of action, but even if China decided against, the U.S. would have been immeasurably strengthened. And its alliances, including in Asia, would have been immeasurably strengthened. And that's a critical feature, because ultimately, China would like the US out of Asia. So doubling down on Asian alliances, doubling down on European alliances, not excluding China, but to say to China, join this revision, this revision. Let's get back to the reform and opening program. I think this would have been of tremendous value.
1: We'll talk to the next administration.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I just touched the table. Sorry if I'm giving away my uh, personal political thoughts. Now, the emergency declaration and the executive order that uh, Trump announced about tech companies from so-called adversary nations were obviously aimed directly at Huawei. An observation from me is that whereas to regular people in China, the tariffs haven't been um, a subject of much interest or excitement. Messing around with Huawei actually seems to generate a pretty strong emotional response from many Chinese people. It almost personal. Yeah. It's almost personal. I mean, you're messing with people's phones somehow, uh, you know, and a, a, a source of national pride. So what is the likely impact of this, uh, I think earlier you described it as taking a sledgehammer to the problem, the sledgehammer approach to Huawei. How does this complicate China's negotiating position?
0: Well, the Huawei situation it may or may not be a complication depending on how many open dreadful issues China wants to leave on the table and how many open dreadful issues the U.S. wants to leave on the table. But I think the Huawei situation is a very complicated one. On the one hand, there has been a longstanding national security concern with respect to Huawei, particularly in uh, uh, networks. On the other hand, there's no question that Huawei is also a highly innovative company and that given supply chains and given the way technologies operate, both hardware and software, interchange between countries and parties and partners is a critical feature of the innovation cycle. Uh, And of course, many of Huawei's major suppliers are U.S. suppliers. So how do you ensure that the U.S. economically remains strong in this field, has the best technology, the best ideas, the best ability for interchange, And the best hope for the future technologies, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, protect U.S. national security in those areas deemed a security risk. And Huawei straddles those two extremes. Huawei is just stuck in the middle. Mm. There's a security aspect, and there's a highly positive, innovative, and economic aspect. So Could there be a better way to protect the security aspect or mitigate that aspect while not losing this other very important part of the Huawei equation? I don't know. I don't think the administration was interested in trying to thread that course, at least not at the present time. But at some point, I think it will be necessary to thread that course or we'll see not just Huawei disadvantaged, but most of our major tech companies highly disadvantaged as well.
1: I've heard a lot of speculation about ways in which China might respond to this latest escalation. Uh, some of these seem rather far-fetched to me, and some seem possibly, you know, more 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 likely. Uh, one is, for example, choking off rare earths exports. China happens to be one of the geographies in the world that has. Uh, uh, not, not a monopoly on, but well, a, a fair large preponderance of the known rare earths, which are necessary for a lot of advanced electronics. Uh, the other is a T-bill sell-off, or at least maybe just not showing up at treasury auction. Uh, do you see either of these as, as likely, or, or do you see any sorts of responses as, as, as something we should maybe buckle up and prepare for?
0: China has not infrequently uh, expressed its displeasure at companies or at countries through their companies who do things that China's not happy about, right? The the example most people use is Korea and the THAAD deployment uh and then the economic retribution China took out on a major Korean company.
1: Lotta Lotta all the stores were closed. Right?
0: Exactly. And they've not recovered. So uh so that has happened. It's happened in other instances as well. There have been American companies that have been subject to this kind of behavior. Uh, so would I expect There to be blowback on American companies, yes. Has there been? Yes, to certain companies. Uh, How significant is the blowback? Uh, So far, not crippling, but it certainly could become. Uh, Bear in mind, of course, that certain actions China could have taken. It doesn't need to because companies were already blocked. There's no Google search in China. There's no Facebook in China. There's no Twitter in China. So in the sense that that there are certain actions already blocked, uh, certainly China would have easily and readily gone after those kinds of social uh, media platforms uh, in a situation that we're facing today. But there are other things that China can do. And so I would expect... Companies, not all, but some, to be caught somewhere between threat and coercion by China.
2: Hmm. I think we have time for just one last question on a specific note about uh, possible retribution. Two possibilities: what do you? One, uh, a major action against Apple. Number two, uh, do you think China might do something uh, similar to what has been done to uh, Canada after the arrest of the Huawei CFO when two Canadian citizens were detained and now formally arrested on uh, trumped-up uh, spying charges?
1: Michael um, Kovrig and Michael Spivor, right? Yeah. I, I, or,
2: or do those two possibilities sound... Uh, are those possibilities? I,
0: look, nothing is impossible, but... The second strikes me as quite unlikely. Uh, you know, there's escalation and then there's escalation. And you've got to be careful how you play these things because sometimes things spin out of control in ways that uh, can't be ratcheted back very easily. So in terms of the arrest of U.S. executives or things of that sort, Uh, Obviously, I could be wrong, but I'd be pretty shocked uh, at anything of that sort. Uh, I just don't see that in China's interest uh, at the end of the day. Uh, In terms of action against a specific sort of marquee American company, uh, one can't discount the possibility. What that company might provide, who it might be, I just don't know.
1: Well, and they'd be well to remember. There's there's Canada and there's... There's South Korea, and then there's the United States of America. You don't know, want uh, <laughs> very different com- countries we're talking about, uh, Ambassador Barshevsky. What a pleasure to have you back on the show. Let's give it up, Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky. Thank you so much for sharing your very valuable insights, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, and I uh, hope we, we enjoy the rest of the evening. I'm just going to take it out here. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Where are you, Jason? Stand up. There he is. All right. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. We mean it. Just drop us an email. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and uh, make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, featuring the amazing Ray Ma, who is in the audience today. Yay! Yay. <laughs> She's back there. You'll be, I don't want spoilers, but you'll be meeting her again later today. Uh, of course, the uh, New Voices podcast, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, the host of which is also in our audience today, Juliana Batista. All right. And the new Middle Earth podcast on the cultural industry in China. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. Yes. <clears throat>